verses 1 to 11. Let me read it to you. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. There are some things that men just seem to do naturally. Now, I'm going to make a generalization, and academics hate generalizations, except when it comes to uh, scientific hypotheses, and then they're very comfortable with them. But here's the generalization. All true thinking begins with generalization. Nope, that's a generalization. I'm going to make a generalization. I know what I'm doing. I mean it. All right? And I know every single individual is not the way I'm going to say. All right. Men just naturally eat a whole batch of cookies as it comes out of the oven. All men seem to naturally prefer sitting in front of the TV to talking with their wives. Men naturally choose meat over veggies, potatoes over rice, and hunting over shopping. Some men are different, but on average, a guy doesn't go hog wild over cross-stitch or wallpaper. Now, this is the generalization where I'm headed. All men are, by nature, kingdom builders. When I was a little kid, we lived in Philadelphia, and we had a side yard. In the side yard were four railroad ties, and in between the railroad ties was a bunch of sand. And I would spend hour after hour after hour building a kingdom in that sand. And no, I didn't have any dolls in the kingdom. <laughs> I wasn't making a family. I was building a kingdom. Some kingdoms are very small, and some men aren't satisfied with small kingdoms, and they set their sights on much larger borders. And from the time they're young, some kids know that they want to be president of the United States, and others spend their childhood practicing their kingdom-building technique. I had mine in that sandbox. Other boys play Dungeons and Dragons, or they build... Uh, character in an online game. Uh, I had castles. I had moats and bridges and roads and flagpoles 
and who knows what else, and I loved it. It was all mine, and nobody else messed with it except a cat. Um, <laughs> other boys build tree forts. But in one way or another, most men manage to fence off a little or a big area in their life over which they can exercise authority and direction. Christ's disciples, whatever else they may have been, were certainly men. And like most men, they dreamed of building and ruling kingdoms. What kind of a kingdom was it that the disciples dreamt of? Well, any Jew worth his salt was dreaming of the kingdom that the Old Testament prophets had promised would be set up when the Messiah came. They had said that it was going to be a wonderful day when the Messiah came because he would restore their nation to the prominence and freedom and prosperity that had been present back in the good old days, back when... Come on. David. I would say David, Moses, but especially David, when David was king. Jews dreamed of the coming kingdom. It was going to be a strong one. It was going to be a powerful one. It was going to be a rich one. And Daniel the prophet had described that coming kingdom in this way, Daniel 2. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king... What will take place in the future? The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel chapter 2. Speaking of the coming Messiah, Daniel in chapter 7 prophesies, In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, this is what the disciples had in mind when they dreamed of a kingdom. And so whenever Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the disciples always thought he was talking about some great powerful nation that would have Jesus as its king and each of them as his secretary of state or vice president. You see, they were looking for some perks for their faithful support of his ministry, just like politicians today expect to be given some sort of a job after they've helped a candidate win an election. And here Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God. He spoke about it more than he spoke about anything else. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. He told Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said that getting into the kingdom of God is more important than anything else in life. It's more important than money or clothes or corn stored in silos. It's more important even than our families. According to Jesus, nothing is as important as the kingdom of heaven. In fact, when we are told what Jesus' preaching was all about, we find that it was all about the kingdom of God. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry is described in this way by the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. 
So here Jesus was always talking and teaching about the kingdom of God, but he never went ahead and did anything about it. As far as the disciples could tell, all this talk about the coming of the kingdom of God was all talk and no action. It was a bunch of hot air. How in the world could you expect people to follow and respect a king who goes and gets himself crucified out there in public like a common criminal? And it wasn't fitting. I'll never forget the day I was in London. I'd been there two years earlier. I came back two years earlier. Everybody in London at Hyde Park at the Speaker's Corner was talking about racism, uh, American uh, imperialism, um, and then lots and lots about Christianity and various cults, religion. But I went back, and that place was overrun with Arabs who were Islamic, and they were angry. And after a while, I engaged a few of them in conversation. And they looked at me and they said, you're an American. I was happy to be owned an American. And uh, they said, so you worship. And notice they transparently assume every American is a Christian. Well, with me, they were right. You worship a God who gets killed. And then they were like spitting on the ground. They were completely, uh, what's the word, uh, disgusted and, and lampooning and making fun of me for worshiping a God who gets killed. Now, doesn't that fit in with what we see in the great conflict in the Middle East? Our God gets killed. What's that about? So I said to them, okay, so I worship weakness. Is that what you're saying? And they said, well, you know, basically, it's not even weakness. It's pathetic. And I said, so you worship power, right? And they said, yes. And they didn't come right out and say it, but yes. Our God's mighty. I said, well, if you worship power, then your God's the United States. And I said, you should worship us. Because I said, nothing you do in the Mideast can stand against our military machine. It doesn't matter what you do, you won't win. And they started frothing at the mouth. And I said to them, if you want to worship power, that's your solution. And that's why they blow themselves up, killing their own people. Because they do worship power. And anything you do to get power is justified. Do you understand that? And then I said to them that I don't worship the United States and nor do I believe the security of this nation is in the hands of horses and chariots. Psalm 20. I worship the living God. And the living God is not dependent upon the military might of a nation to direct the king, the heart of the king, and to give that country security. The disciples had lived to see their king crucified. And they had the same decision, which was whether to make fun of and despise that king because he was so weak that he could not protect himself, or whether to see the cross as the power of God, as the wisdom of God. And so you say, well, the disciples had gone through the crucifixion. They'd seen that God vindicated his son and raised him from the dead after he was crucified. 
And so what we're seeing here at the beginning of the book of Acts are men who have already shown that they're committed to a God who will die, whose weakness is strength. Well, I ask you to look back at the text. What happens here? It says, verse 3, that Jesus was speaking of the things concerning what? Do you see that in verse 3? It says, concerning what? It says, the kingdom of God. All right? And then, if you'll skip down to verse 6, you'll see their response. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, what is the context for their question? Is it clear that they've resigned themselves to having a God who gets crucified and who's impotent to, 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 to oppose it? Who, when the Jewish religious leaders look at him and they say, you say that you love God and that he's your father, well, come on, you know, have him take you down. You know, if you're the son of God, let him deliver you. If he delights in you. And God did not deliver Christ from the cross. He really did die. It's not what the Muslims say, that it was a fake death. No, he died. But did God deliver his son? Yes. Three days later, God vindicated him. And across the earth went the news that God delighted in that son who went to the cross and died. And that it would be through that son and his sacrificial death that any who came into the holy presence of God would have any hope of not being consumed. And that's the nature of being a Christian. We walk into the presence of God at the judgment seat through the crucified Son of God whose righteousness becomes ours. All right? That's it. We're born into Adam's sin. We believe in Jesus Christ and his righteousness becomes our advocate, our judge, our, or not our judge, our attorney at the court of law, all right, when we stand before the holiness of God. And so here the disciples are. They're in front of Jesus. He's again talking to them of the kingdom of God. And they're saying, yes, we can't wait for that kingdom. We know now that that kingdom is not of this world, but of eternity. That that kingdom is a kingdom that is uh, of such a, such a flip-flop that we will walk on streets of gold. That the most precious thing to man becomes the thing that just simply paves the streets up in heaven. All right? But that's not what they said. They said, Lord, now? Now? In other words, they hadn't gotten it yet. And so what does Jesus say? They said, Lord, at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs by which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He's speaking to them of the kingdom. They've gone through the terrible crucifixion, but now the resurrection, and it's clear that he is alive and that this is something categorically different than mankind has ever seen. And so he's speaking to them of the kingdom, and they say to him, Lord, now, now are you going to get rid of the oppression of Rome? Now will we get the thing that we've all been waiting for. And he says, you know, the kingdom you want is not for you to know about. That's for the Father. But you shall receive power. Now, power and kingdom go together, don't they? 
And so, even though they're told it's not for you to know, he says, you shall receive power. But what was the power? What was the power? The power was the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses. Now, the word witness in, 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 in English um, uh, may not put a fine enough point on it to you. In Greek, do you know what the word is? Uh, let me tell you this. It's the same word that we get the word martyr from. Martis. And so when it says they will be witnesses, what it means is that they will have the privilege of suffering for Christ. In other words, guys, both Jesus and his disciples will take up their crosses. In other words... The same way that Jesus Christ established his kingdom will be the way that the Holy Spirit establishes the kingdom of God in this earth, and that is as Christians take up their cross daily and follow their master. Now, do you think that's what the disciples wanted? Do you think that's what they were dreaming of? You shall receive power, and their hearts start thump, 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 and you shall be martyrs. Code the dude. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't want power to be a witness to die. He doesn't want to be Paul being booted from city to city, stoned, shipwrecked, starved, naked, despised, arrested, rioted over, stoned again. But you know something? That is the history of the church in the book of Acts. And you know something? The people in the church in Jerusalem did not make a choice to go out to Judea and Samaria, and they did not make a choice to go out to the ends of the earth. The history of the book of Acts, if you watch the outline, is the history of the Christians being forced out because they're too comfortably numb. They're all sitting around in a church clean, and it's a group of people that agrees. And what happens? God, in his sovereign will, sends persecution. And as they are persecuted, they are forced to leave Jerusalem and go out into Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, the disciples didn't listen to Jesus and say, okay, we get it. The power we're going to have is a power to be martyrs. And we get it. You want us to leave our comfort zone. So Jesus, right here and now, we commit ourselves to going to far off lands, to going to Africa where the lions make bad noises. No. They were a work in progress. And they continued to love their master. They continued to pray to God. They continued to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayer. And God disciplined them so that they would grow in obedience. And as God disciplined them, and one of the disciplines was making them into martyrs, they were shoved out of Jerusalem, and then they took the gospel to the whole Roman Empire and around the world. Now, I want you to think of this as a metaphor or an allegory or a parable of our church. We don't want pagans in the pews with us. Come on, people, be honest. You don't want to have to explain the crucified Savior to anybody in church on Sunday morning. You want to have one time in your life 
where there's not this, you know, that you have two engines where there's slightly different RPM out on the, out on the road, and, and you hear the engines fighting against each other through the, the RPM, you know? You know what I'm talking about, some of you? Somebody here know what I'm talking about? Next time you're out on an interstate and you're going slightly a different speed than some other vehicle, you hear it. Or when two strings are being plucked and they're almost in tune but not quite. You know? Okay? We don't want that in church on Sunday morning. We have to deal with it with the television, the newspaper, and the classes we go to, and the union shop. We have to deal with it when we go to union meetings. We have to deal with it with our relatives when we go to family reunions. We don't want in church on Sunday morning. And so God will have to discipline us. And I believe part of the discipline is that we're going to have to leave this sanctuary and go out into a public school. And we are going to be dependent on the kindness of the public school system. <laughs> and we're going to be in a different part of the city. And we're going to lose some people. And it is God's habit to deal with his people, to wean them from a desire for and a dependence upon a kingdom of this world. A kingdom of comfortably numb. <laughs> okay, I'm done, right? Um Do you have enough self-reflection and self-knowledge to realize that what you really want is to be comfortably numb? That, yeah, you agree that the Great Commission is a wonderful thing and that's why we have the doubts. Let me tell you what's going to happen, people. America is going to do exactly what C.S. Lewis said. You can, he said you can have your, they tell you you can have your religion in private and then they make sure you're never alone. And in this country, increasingly, we are going to be put into a position where the people that we rent our, 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 our apartments to and the people that we hire and the people that we write about and the way I preach my sermons are going to come under the law such that there's a limited thing that I'm going to be able to say about a whole host of issues where the government is intolerant of the Christian faith and is intolerant in the name of tolerance. And it will become gradual. It will go day by day, little by little. And we as Christians will not be able to love people who are tempted by same-sex intimacy because we will not be able to tell them the one thing they need to know, which is they have the mercy seat of Christ to plead for them in their sin. Because sin labels and it's intolerant and the law will keep us from saying it. It's already happening all the time in Canada. It's happening all over the world. And that's what all the fight is about today in this country. So what's the solution? Hey, I got an idea. This November, let's take back Washington. <laughs> well, it's a joke. We have it. And what is it worth, people? It's not the kingdom of this world. It is not the Republican Party. It's not the... Um, Oh, whatever those other parties that are even more conservative are called. Um, it's not the marriage amendment. I'm not against the marriage amendment, but it's not the marriage amendment. Okay? It is martyrs. It is witnesses. 
It is you writing in your paper for the university precisely what you believe, precisely at the point where the professor is trying to silence your belief in your discipline, and you being privileged to maybe get booted from the Ph.D. program. Praise God. It is you saying at the union hall the very thing that all of your brothers okay, have absolutely no tolerance for. And they will view you as having betrayed them by speaking that truth. It is you making a decision in a management meeting that causes you to oppose the CEO or the COO and causes you never to be in consideration for succession in future years. It is you gathering together with your relatives at a family reunion and you speaking to your sister who is a lesbian and saying to her that she has the privilege of coming before the mercy seat of God. And then having the whole family say, now what did you have to do? go and bring that up for? And you said, because I love souls. <laughs> it's you going to the place that they kill human beings, all right, babies, here in this town, and calling out to the mothers and holding out to them the love of Jesus Christ, that you'll take the baby, that you'll pay for the medical care, that you'll love her, that you'll give her a crib if she wants to keep it herself, and that you won't judge her, but you will judge the killing of unborn children in their mother's wombs. All right? This is who Christians are. It's who we were at the time of Christ. We don't mix up the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, in the next sermon, I'm going to preach about the nature of us taking that kingdom. But I want you all to stop right now and think, what exactly is it that your heart beats for? What do you beat for? Listen, I, I warn you, do not listen to Rush Limbaugh. Do not listen to him. Why? Because you'll get confused about the kingdom of God. That's why. And all your vital juices will be used in a battle that is eternally inconsequential to you as a believer. Now, I'm not saying that moral issues aren't worth fighting over and politics isn't important. We shouldn't vote and some Christians shouldn't run for office. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that Rush Limbaugh hasn't done some good things for this country. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, how about, here's an idea. How about those of you who are men, now I'm speaking men specifically and not generically. How about those of you who are men not wasting all of your male hormone on football and basketball and Rush Limbaugh and the editorial pages of the local paper? Here's an idea. How about if we take our male hormone and use it for the kingdom of God? And you know what that means? That means being witnesses. You know what that means? It means being martyrs. You know what we're martyrs for? We're not martyrs for the marriage amendment. We're martyrs for the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we love. That's where we're headed. Now, that doesn't mean that if we're judges or if we're lecturers or if we're professors or if we're union men that we don't be faithful in the callings God gives us. The problem with America today is all of these positions are filled with Christians who are compromised and in their specific calling won't be faithful to God. And if all of the people who are Christians in this country really did live under the Lordship of Christ and the truth of His Word in their specific personal decisions and actions, we would not have anything that we have today. 
And if we had pastors who were faithful in the pulpit calling men who had positions of authority to stop betraying and being ashamed of their master, we wouldn't have the problems that we have today. But I'm not about to say to you that I'm going to start preaching about the problems in Washington and how we should all boycott Disney. I couldn't give a rip about it. What I care about is that pastors and elders and deacons and Titus II women and fathers and mothers and people sitting in the pews want complacency, want to be comfortably numb. And I don't want you to do that, not because I think our church will grow. I hope it will. But what I want from you is I want you to demonstrate that you know you're going to die. And you're going to give an answer to God for how you have been a steward of your life. And if there's no visible evidence that you're a martyr in your life, I say, what good are you? You're not worth... You know what Jesus said. Jesus says, uh, you know, what good is salt? It's only worth being spit out. And that's what Jesus said about when the salt loses its savor. And what about a light that loses its light and is hit under a bushel? What good is it? It would be better to blow it out because then you're not reminded of what it could be if that bushel were taken off over the top of it. Okay? What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? And how is it visible in your life? How can I see it in your life? Huh? Okay, JC, it's your job now to go outside and to do what you did here, which is speak of your Savior. You're to do it to your family. You're to do it to your friends. You are to do it to your professors, to your boss. And you're to burn every bridge you have, not by being tactless and mean, but by being so loving that you're not going to allow them to silence your testimony to Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. That's the book of Acts. That's the story of the church. And that is how the church did take over the Roman Empire. It wasn't through all those Jewish messianic figures that came and whooped up. Every single one of them ended up dying. But Jesus and his witnesses did die, and the church grew. You remember the old saying of the church, and it is what? Ah, come on. Come on, speak it up. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the word in Latin, seed, is what? Huh? Joseph? It's the word sperm. Now, if you don't get that, you're never going to get it. That is the vital male principle. So, do you have it? Or do you waste it on basketball and baseball and football and soccer and television? Dungeons and Dragons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that you did, that you are.